If you happen to be in need of a new t-shirt, hoodie, sticker, journal, or magnet, and want to help support this podcast, why not kill two birds with one stone and visit our official merch store? Check out the ever-growing selection of designs inspired by Japanese history at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com. Thank you for your support. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 2, Episode 2, From Villages to Kingdoms. The typical story of the Yayoi period is that it represents a transition between the egalitarian Jomon period and the much more socially rigid hierarchical Kofun period. Elite people emerged in various regions, fought one another for control and influence, and eventually one kingdom rose above the others to claim hegemony. I want this season to be more than the usual regurgitated business of Yayoi period equals hierarchy, and really analyze the process by which the egalitarian villages developed social strata, which eventually led to special classes of nobles and kings. While there is much about this period which we can never know for certain, the archaeology tells a rather interesting story. First, let's revisit the issue of geology in Japan. In the last episode, I talked about the east-west divide and how the villages on the eastern Kanto plain did not experience the surge in population from which their western counterparts benefited. This is in part because until around 300 BCE, Yayoi people were still emigrating from the Korean peninsula, so the western portions of Japan received an influx of newcomers, along with the population boom that accompanied the introduction of agriculture. As a result, growth in the Kanto was much slower than in Kyushu, Shikoku, Chugoku, that's the name for western Honshu, and Kansai, which is the name for central Honshu. Northern Honshu, a region called Tohoku, also dealt with slower growth, but we'll get to them later. Northern Kyushu experienced a power surge early on, benefiting from both the influx of newcomers as well as proximity to important resources. An island called Imayama in the northern end of Kyushu was made primarily from volcanic rock called basalt, which could be worked into stone hand axes. We have evidence that the raw bits of unworked basalt were sent in a circuit through several villages throughout northern Kyushu, with each village contributing a part of the process by which the stone was worked into a usable tool. This ancient assembly line shows that even early in the Yayoi period, there was a spirit of cooperation between some of these settlements, which led to a surprising level of organization. This is not to say that the Yayoi period was some utopia. Weapon-scarred skeletons, some of them headless, tell us that just as the people could be organized to hone blades and shape axe faces, so could they also be prepared to do battle. So many war dead have been found from this period, 
that there is no doubt these war bands were certainly made up of farmer warriors rather than a professional fighting class. That brings us neatly to the subject of death. I mentioned last time that the Dogu figurines were seemingly abandoned minutes, historically speaking, after the Yayoi arrived and introduced agriculture. Instead of being buried in a pit with a clay figure, the Japanese began burying their dead in large globular jars accompanied by a few grave goods like tools and weapons. The significance and meaning of this custom deserves its own episode, so I won't be going over its complexity right now. Suffice to say, the jar burial was initially employed by every member of a given village, regardless of family connection or lack thereof. The question of how various villages and emerging confederations would compete with one another has an interesting answer. Mega-villages would exchange gifts with one another as tokens of friendship and trust. Early on, collections of stone axes and reaping knives were common gifts and represented something deeper than just a crass bribe. These gifts helped people survive. Given its proximity to Imayama, the mega-village confederation that emerged in northern Kyushu around the 400s BCE was, for some time, one of the most powerful of the primeval polities. Northern Kyushu exchanged gifts not only with their Japanese neighbors, but with the coastal villages of southern Korea as well. In the 200s BCE, stone axes became abruptly outmoded by bronze axes given as gifts from Korea. This was a boon to their influence. They could extract all sorts of promises from their neighboring villages and confederations for quality exotic goods like these. Alongside the axes came cylindrical bronze bells called dotaku, which the ritualists of farming villages found very useful for, we believe, appealing to the spirits to give them a good harvest. In keeping with the Yayoi way of combining the best of the foreign with the best of the native, smiths in the Kansai region began acquiring bronze from trade with those mega-villages in Chugoku who had received them from northern Kyushu and melting the bronze down to rework as they saw fit using pit furnaces. Kyushu, not to be outdone, pressed their Korean allies for more exotic bronze gifts, which eventually paid off around 108 BCE when the army of the Han dynasty defeated the Wiman Joseon dynasty in northern Korea and established four state commanderies there. While China still used bronze for things like mirrors, they preferred forging weapons from the firmer, lighter, and purer iron. Iron tools became much coveted in Japan, and for over a hundred years, the Northern Kyushu Confederation gained power and prestige through their access to these exotic and highly prized items. As the gift-based economy elevated personal property as a status symbol, the culture began to transition from egalitarian solidarity towards social status-based hierarchy. Burial jars once used for every deceased person, were now reserved solely for hereditary village leaders. For that matter, burial grounds became segregated as the elite carved out rectangular grounds for their final resting place, signifying that leaders in a village were no longer chosen based on merit alone, but by hereditary inheritance. 
Yet there are also signs of pushback from the community at large against increasingly brazen power grabs by the leaders among the mega-villages and confederations. Villages began to utilize irrigation in the first two centuries of the Common Era, and we can surmise from the excavated remains that the series of canals that brought water to the rice paddies were built in such a way that they provided for every paddy, not just those that belonged to the powerful. Likewise, the rectangular sections marked for burial of the elite also served as feasting grounds, which probably indicate a similar worldview as that of Shang Dynasty China, wherein the ancestors of the village elites were seen as intercessors to the kami on behalf of the entire village and not just their own immediate families. On lonely hilltops throughout the Kansai and parts of Shikoku and Chugoku, we find clusters of dotaku bells buried in the soil. This may have been an agricultural ritual meant to bring a good harvest, but the presence of many bells in a mass burial leads some to conclude that clan alliances and treaties were sealed by this interment. The elites of Kyushu and the western end of Chugoku buried bunches of spearheads, swords, and other bronze weapons in their hilltops, likely for the same esoteric purpose. In villages across Japan during the early centuries of the Common Era, we see the emergence of deep ditches as a means of separating the homes and even granaries of the elite from those of the common people. Likewise, entire villages would often be encircled with a rudimentary ditch, some of which were five meters deep. That's 16 feet. There's little debate over the purpose of the village encircling ditch. Its defensive properties seem self-evident. This indicates that there was enough fighting to warrant the labor and effort behind such a vast and time-consuming construction project. Getting back to northern Kyushu, good times don't last forever. In the early parts of the first century CE, a coup and subsequent rebellion at the Leilong Commandery in northern Korea temporarily halted the flow of bronze and iron goods. The effect on the emerging polity in northern Kyushu was disastrous. Entire settlements were abandoned, although evidence tells us this was a process of consolidation toward better defensible settlements inland, not wholesale abandonment or collapse. This disaster was not permanent for northern Kyushu, however, and we do note that in 57 CE, the emperor of Han China granted a northern Kyushu kingdom called Nakoku an official imperial seal made of gold. Their natural proximity to the Korean peninsula and access to Chinese goods meant that the Nakoku state would be around for quite a while longer. It's worth noting that contemporary Chinese historians describe Japan, which they named Wo or Wa, as a land with hundreds of small kingdoms and tribal communities. This description certainly has some merit, though I would argue that it's difficult enough, even with the resources we have today, to truly understand the political systems of nations outside of our own. We should also note that Chinese historians were in the habit of describing their neighbors as barbarians who alternated between being laughably simple and violently bloodthirsty, so their descriptions should merit at least a small amount of skepticism. 
I did promise that we would get back to Tohoku, the northern region of Honshu, so let's do that now. Tohoku initially adopted wet rice farming just like their southern neighbors, but with far less impressive results. The reason for this disappointment was climate. Much of Japan resides inside a monsoon zone where the rains fall fairly regularly during certain times of the year and where warmer temperatures make for better fortunes in growing rice, which, although a hardy grain, can be negatively impacted by lower temperatures. North of 38 degrees latitude, near Fukushima and Niigata cities today, the winters get very cold, the summers very mild, and the rainfall far more irregular. Evidence suggests that the residents of Tohoku, which probably experienced a far smaller influx of Yayoi immigrants, had very little luck in farming rice. The bound fields we have discovered there show that they tried building the walls of the paddy taller to keep more water on top of the rice. We believe this was an attempt to regulate the rice's temperature a little better, as a greater volume of water will take longer to get cold and is more likely to remain at a mild temperature. But judging from settlement sizes, it doesn't look like the Tohoku people of the north had much luck with the large-scale agriculture. They also did not have close contact with the Yayoi of Kansai or the Kanto, but turned instead to Hokkaido and the assistance of the Ainu people. Thus they reverted to a modified Jomon way, which we refer to as epi-Jomon culture. Rather than continue their failed experiment of rice cultivation, they went back to hunting and gathering, fishing, and shared a cultural affinity with their northern neighbors, which would eventually put them at odds with the kingdoms that emerged to their south. Next time, we'll explore how bronze and iron transformed Yayoi society. Until then, thank you for listening. Please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash a history of Japan. 